there, welcome back. Thank you for joining us here on The Conversation. I'm Brooke Thomas filling in tonight and I'm so, so glad to be here. We have two guests for you tonight as always and let's get right into it. First up, we're gonna talk to a congressional candidate out of New York's District 9, Adam Bunkadeco. Thank you for being here with us tonight. Uh, thank you, I appreciate the, the time. Awesome, let's get right into it. For our viewers who may not be familiar with you, why are you running for Congress? Sure, uh, this is my second time running yes. again. And I'm running uh, because we need to go in a different direction in our district. Uh, we've got enormous challenges that we're facing here in central Brooklyn from housing to criminal justice to education uh, to folks just finding an opportunity to make it to get ahead. Folks like my parents who came here as war refugees from Uganda. Uh, and so I was born and raised in this city and this place means so much to me. And I've tried to give back as much as I can. And I think we need to do that in Washington. So let's talk about, you mentioned this is your second time running. The first time it was in 2018, right? And it actually was a pretty tight race if uh, I'm not mistaken. Did, what did you like take away from that? What'd you learn from that experience? Uh, I learned that you can survive on very little <laughs> uh, when you're running a campaign, but I think for for me, what I did learn was that folks are hungry to go in a different direction. Uh, and if we stand up for our values, for our principles, uh, progressive values, our progressive principles, in order to make a difference in our community, I think people will not only uh, be receptive to it, but they will move in a direction that I think a lot of us uh, are hoping to go, not only in this city and in this state, but in this country at large. Let's talk about uh, why you think Yvette Clark needs to be unseated. Sure, uh, it's pretty simple. I, I've worked in and lived in this uh, my community this in my most of my life, mm -hmm. uh, and Miss Clark hasn't done the things that you expect a member of Congress to do. She hasn't passed any meaningful legislation. Uh, constituent services are a mess. But on the key issue that uh, I brought up during the first campaign, and which I continue to bring up, is housing. Uh, Crown Heights is the epicenter of the nation's housing crisis. And we've got enormous challenges going forward. Rent is escalating above 20% for a lot of folks in our community. And what I'm hoping to propose is what I offered during the last time on the campaign, which is a pathway to ownership for communities of color that are now finding themselves gentrified and displaced in our community, folks who live in public housing. We have one of the largest proportion of public housing of any congressional district in the country. And so to me, what I think we need to highlight is to not only advocate for the against this administration, which is a total abomination to all of the things that all of us as Americans really believe in, but also for the things that have been going wrong and decaying in our part of central Brooklyn for over two decades now. And that is largely around housing. So uh, the, your race is actually getting a lot of attention, a lot of attention nationally. I've seen a lot of write-ups about uh, your district's race, and you're not the only challenger. Sure. Why? What uh, do you say to like voters? Why are you better than the other candidates? Sure. I think for us, uh, look, we've been primarying folks before it became cool. <laughs> uh, and so to me, I think uh, what we need are folks who are going to go out there and stand up uh, for the values and the issues when. I remember when people came to me and told me, don't do this, this is stupid. If you want a career in politics, this is not the decision to make. And I said, well, what's the point of choosing to go down this road if you aren't gonna stand up for the things that are right? And for me, 
Um, whoever has that message, whoever can build the coalition in our district, which is a very diverse one. Uh, it stretches from Park Slope to Brownsville all the way down to Sheepshead Bay. Um, whoever does that will, I think, have the winning message going forward and I believe win this election. I want to talk about your background a little bit, if that's sure. okay. Uh, and, it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but your parents were refugees from Uganda? Yes. Is that correct? Okay, how, how do you think that's influenced your policies? Absolutely. I mean, my dad came to this country in 1980 with $50 in his pocket, clothes he was wearing, extra set in a suitcase. Uh, first place he went to was a detention center over in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Uh. Um, he worked five years, odd jobs, McDonald's, Dunkin' Donuts, janitor, security guard, you name it. Uh, my mom lived through a civil war in Uganda. So when people talk about uh, S-hole countries mm -hmm. uh, are like our president, uh, that those words are meaningful to not only me, but my family and those in our community who come from the West Indies, from Sub-Saharan Africa. And so the push for uh, immigration uh, reform is not just some talking point to me, but it's the mere existence on how I was able to not only grow up here in this city. I grew up in a one bedroom apartment, one of six, uh, attended public schools as a child, was fortunate to get scholarships to go to private school, to Haverford and eventually Harvard. Uh, but I've spent my entire life realizing that I'm not, I'm lucky in many ways. And that luck shouldn't be just given to someone with who has chance or who has two parents who are willing to work hard. Uh, I think that should be given to every kid in our community and every person in our country. Uh, and those who are willing to come to this country and willing to sacrifice life and limb to get there ought to have the opportunity to do that. I think it's so fascinating, not fascinating, but I think it's important that you brought up, that you used the phrase immigration reform yeah. in this context, because I think so often these days it's used to kind of placate some of Trump's policies. Like, oh, yeah. we do need immigration reform, but, and it's like, wait a minute, the reform we need is the total opposite of that. There is no but. Yeah, there is no but. Yeah, and we I actually need it to be easier for more people. Yeah, we need to, so, and I, that's why I think this country is great because we allow folks from all across the world to come to this country, from war-torn countries like my parents, but also from countries in which uh, they're experiencing famine, drought, and the like. And if we close the doors on that, mm -hmm. then we are becoming something else that isn't American. And that's not the kind of country that we should try to, that we want to live in or should aspire to be in. Um, you know, I think I, thought about it when my parents, when my mom uh, talked to me after the election. Uh, and it was a sort of chilling remark in the sense that, you know, she said openly out loud, uh, if Donald Trump were elected when we were coming to this country at, um, if we were coming to this country in the 80s, I don't know if we would have come here. And I thought about my entire life and how I've been blessed uh, having grown up in uh, working class communities this whole, uh, in my entire life, that that potentially might not have been the case. And so we really gotta be not, and to your point, I think it's not about immigration reform. It's about what is right, what is fair, and what is just. Absolutely. Uh, let's talk about some issues that are important to you. Let's talk, uh, maybe we can start with housing as a right. What are sure. uh, the specific housing issues happening in New York? And then uh, tell our viewers how you plan to address them. Absolutely, I think you can think about it in three ways. So we've got one, we've got folks of color who historically live in districts that have not, that have been redlined 
um, during uh, the 30s, 40s, and 50s. So many of the people being displaced right now are folks whose families came here, again, from the Deep South, from the West Indies, and were denied the opportunity to own. Uh, and we need to rectify that. We need to allow for folks to be able to own the communities that they help hold together. And so that's why I proposed the Mitchell Lama program, similar to the one we have here in the, in the state, in which folks can be able to own uh, cooperatives uh, for middle income and, work and low income folks to be able to own the communities that they help hold together. Two is public housing. Again, as was mentioning before, we have one of the largest stocks of public housing of any congressional district in the country. We need to fully fund NYCHA, but we also need to fully fund public authorities, uh, public housing authorities all across this country. Brooke, um, we have got a issue on public housing. Federal government has been disinvesting in public housing since the 70s, since mm -hmm. Nixon. And that's been Republicans and Democrats who've been signing on to that. And that can no longer hold. I've got folks who live in the Albany houses here in Crown Heights down the street from where I live that have a, they go, if you go inside some of their apartments, they don't even have roofs. They literally have toilet water flowing down from their neighbors from upstairs wow. and holding it together with garbage bags. That's not the country that we should deserve to live in. And that's not the country that we ought to aspire to. And then I think the third is affordable housing. We need to make we need to build more housing in this country, uh, and the federal government needs to do that. Uh, we can do that through a series of uh, actions, whether it's a building up the National Housing Trust and actually pouring money as opposed to just only incentivizing developers to build. We need to have the government actually build affordable housing for folks in our community. So on those three fronts, those are the things that I think in central Brooklyn in particular that we need to do. But I think this translates to Everyone across this country, if you live in a major metropolitan city in the United States, you probably know someone or are probably experiencing some issue around housing, in particular rent and gentrification and displacement. And we need this is a national crisis and a national issue and something that folks in the Congress need to address. What about Medicare for all? What do you stand on that? Medicare for all, I am for. I believe we need to move toward a single payer. System One, it's far more efficient. We spend roughly 20% of GDP on healthcare. For countries like Germany and Japan, they spend half of that, 10, 8 to 10%. Mm -hmm. They have better outcomes, they have universal coverage, and it's a far more efficient system. So I don't see why we aren't moving toward that immediately. All right, I wish we had much more time, but our time is up. So I just want to make sure that you shout out where everyone can find you, your website. Sure. Your info. Uh, so we're on Twitter, uh, Adam Bunkadeco. Uh, I got uh, our website that's up on 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 there. Uh, but this is this is uh, those are many ways for us to get engaged, to stay in touch, and to also donate to the campaign. Uh, but I want to say, folks can help out in many ways. They can support either we'll do phone banking for remotely, we'll. Uh, have folks who give uh, small dollar contributions, but we also are happy to have people come out to Central Brooklyn. Uh, I'll buy you uh, a slice of pizza if you if you're into it. <laughs> Thanks so much for being here, Adam. We appreciate the. Thank time. you. All right, we will be right back with another great guest. Stay with us. 
Hey there, welcome back to TYT's The Conversation. I'm Brooke Thomas, and thank you so much for joining us. We have our second guest, and we're gonna switch things up just a little bit. I wanna welcome Paula Saravia, a lecturer at UC San Diego Global Health Program and medical anthropologist. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Brooke. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, and, and you're here to talk about uh, the state violence that Chilean people have been suffering, right? Tell our viewers what's going on. Okay, so during the past two weeks, uh, we have been um, seeing um, massive protests and contestation to the current order that uh, we have in Chile. Uh, people are, um, well, families, students, the elderly, indigenous peoples are gathering on the streets uh, with a million of demands and they're fighting. Facing the usual, it's the state response is being violent. Uh, we have a state of a state of emergency um, during several days, and we had uh, severe repression and human rights abuses that are uh, not systematic, according to the National Institute for Human Rights, but uh, very worrisome. And because of that, we have right now a UN. Um, Committee there in Chile observing the situation. So, if I'm correct, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the protests originally they initially started with an increase in subway fares, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. How, how, explain to our audience how that uh, led to these mass protests. Yeah, so this has a long background okay. that has to do with the living conditions that the Chilean people face every day. Uh, Chile is an extreme uh, case uh, where neoliberal policies were implemented. So uh, that turns uh, the cost of living to be very high for people in Chile. Um, uh, the, the minimum wage is not very high and there are, some, there are some arguments that say that because we haven't been um, growing economically so much, uh, that that's in part why the salaries have stagnated. But Chilean people know better and they know that even when we were growing, uh, salaries were not going uh, to be higher. So everything in Chile is privatized and sometimes it's hard for us Chileans to uh, explain this because we were born, I was born in a country uh, where water is privatized. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it's not the reality that most uh, um, people face here, at least in the United States. So that's a little bit hard to understand. But it went uh, also um, the massive protests turned to be massive uh, because of the repression that students who were protesting, jumping up the subway um, uh, controls for the fares, um, uh, they, they, they encountered great repression from the police and people, uh, just as previous uh, years, people didn't, like, people didn't like that. So it was, uh, it was a boom. It's the sparkle, the sparkle of the of the increase on the on the fare of the subway. Something you were alluding to there, um, I think a lot of people don't know. Uh, Chile is one of Latin America's wealthiest countries, right? But also has one of the highest levels of income inequality in the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Exactly, um, Chile is considered to be a middle income country. Uh, so that means that during the last decades. We have uh, um, 
seen great poverty reduction. Uh, it's we we don't find uh, tremendous poverty like we used to. Uh, people can access. Uh, basic services and can access education, which is not of good quality. But uh, income distribution and the concentration of capital and, and power makes very hard uh, for the common Chilean to see any benefits of this growing and booming economy. Now, these so have been people have to people have to pay to use a highway. We we have uh, even even highways within Santiago are privatized. Um, People have to pay extra for everything, and if you take into account everything that people pay, then um, even for the cost of transportation, takes up to 20% of their salary sometimes. I know these protests have been deadly, right? Can you explain the full extent of the damage? Uh, it's been very sad, at least uh, for me to see from, from here, from San Diego, uh, the repression, um, seeing um, military on the street again, it's very painful, I think, for all Chileans. But at the same time, um, you have a, a group of people, uh, mostly youth, who have been socially excluded for so long. And um, not only excluded, but they don't see the public space as their own. So um, they have been uh, being very violent, uh, burning uh, metro stations, uh, torching cars and buses. Uh, there has also been a lot of looting. For so, for a lot of people, um, the military presence or the police presence uh, has been um, good. However, um, they they kept uh, repressing the Pacific protests and there's um, high, I mean, tons of evidence of that. How instead of uh, going against uh, the looting and the criminality, uh, they were uh, taking people um, in custody, which was totally illegal. And also um, there are several accounts that the, human, the Institute of Human Rights has that have to do with people incarcerated being even tortured and uh, women being raped, women and men being raped. You know, what needs we have also two people that are missing, but um, we don't know where they are. I'm so sorry, it's, it's horrifying. What needs to be done? How can people help um, from where we are here? Yeah, I think that what you're doing, um, just talking to me and letting all the Young Turks audience uh, notice and know about this situation is very, very important. Mm -hmm. It's in part, I think, why uh, this police violence didn't escalate as much as um, in the 70s. Um, there's also a call for um, opening up spaces where people can discuss uh, these issues. Uh, there's um, a call for um, organizations that work with human rights abuses uh, to have an eye on what is going on in Chile so we can document all of this. Paula, thank you. Our pre oh, no, go, keep going. No, no, keep going. <laughs> no, our president just now, I heard him on an interview to the BBC, and he was saying that these abuses were an exception and that he would be um, in favor of investigating them. 
I think that um, holding him accountable of that and making sure that he, um, you know, goes through with this promise of investigating and um, taking care of this situation and avoiding uh, having more police on the street uh, would be would be a part in, of, of the job of the press and the international community as well. That would be very helpful. You know, how are you doing? You know, you kind of mentioned a little bit earlier just how tough it is to watch this from San Diego, from California. How are you doing? Um, it's it's been uh, bittersweet. On the one hand, mm-hmm. uh, you see an awakening, which is something that I would also like to see here sometimes, yeah. where people can realize how this extreme form of neoliberal policy can be so damaging. Uh, on the other hand, it's very sad and, and not only sad, but uh, detrimental and terrible to see human rights abuses happening again. So um, violence, seeing the violence and, and seeing the abuse of the police uh, has been tough for me. But my family is doing great. Um, I mean, given the conditions and uh, things seem to be going to normality, although I don't think that uh, Chilean people will take will go back to normal as they used to. So it's been very, very tough. I can imagine. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here with us. And uh, I, I know it's tough, and but being here and being willing to talk about everything and share this the story and educate our viewers a little bit more, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much and keep, you, keep up with the good work that you do. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. That is the conversation for this evening. Post game is next and you all know the deal. If you are not a member, what are you thinking? Go to tyt.com join and become a member. I'm Brooke Thomas. It has been a great evening. Thank you for having me and stay tuned for post game.